Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Because I think it's incredibly important, before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback that you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and continue to encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or questions to CEO at raincanada.com. That comes directly to me at CEO at reincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd continue to appreciate it if you were to share the show with your friends your family, your pets, and rate the show. Comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback that you provide. It is sincerely appreciated. And I do, in fact, put it to good use and implement some of the changes that you suggest. So thank you very much for that. So let's get this show started. I want to begin first by saying I'm incredibly excited about my guest today. And to be honest, I am just a little bit nervous because today I'm joined by Stephanie Hanlon Francie. And yes, that is my wife. And I've been meaning to get her on the show for quite some time, but recently some uh, cool accomplishments I wanted to share with the world. And I am so proud of her and so honored to be her husband and be her partner and have been part of her journey. And today I want to dig into a little bit of a conversation with, gosh, all the things that she's done, some of her accomplishments, where she got to uh, recently and how she got there. And I think there's lots of lessons to be learned. And I'm hoping that this conversation will take us down a path that gives you some insights, some lessons, some relatability to what can be accomplished by, guess what, seemingly ordinary people. Now, I want to slow down a little bit on her bio because she has accomplished, gosh, so much. And I want to do it really an honor in giving you some insights into just who my wife is, who Stephanie is. And even this won't do it justice. So I'm going to give it a condensed version, but I know it will be a little bit long nonetheless. But let me give you that background. First off, Stephanie is a business owner. She's an international speaker. She's a coach. She's a mentor. She's an innovator for sure. She's definitely a pioneer and a pathfinder for entrepreneurs and other leaders. She is known and trusted as a performance 
coach internationally in both the figure skating and ice hockey world. And over more than 20 years, Stephanie has built an impeccable reputation for results as a skilled personal and professional coach and a development workshop leader and facilitator. She is the managing partner and CEO for Skate Tech Group of Companies, which are her businesses that include professional skate service, skating success, and quantum speed advanced skating systems. She is a world and Olympic class coach in the space of mental performance and leading up to and during the 2006 Winter Olympics, for example, Stephanie worked with Canada's top ice dance team, Marie-France Dubré and Patrice Lausanne, and now recently at the 2018 Olympic Winter Games, she worked with Gabriela Papadakis and Guillaume Cizeron, who won a silver medal for Team France in ice dance. She also worked with the U.S. 2018 national champions, Madison Hubble and Zachary Donahue, who placed fourth at their very first Olympics. She is the strategic partner in the Montreal Training School, EPMIS, which is the acronym for École Patinage et Montreal International Skating School, hashtag EPMIS. And she is the winner of the 2015 YWCA Women of Distinction Award, Trailblazer. She is the 2018 nominee for Alberta Women Entrepreneur Award, given uh, sometime in April 2018, Along with all of that, she has been a master coach and course conductor for Skate Canada. She has been the NHL strength and conditioning coach and skating coach, working with both the Edmonton Oilers and the St. Louis Blues, and literally hundreds of NHL players from across the league. She worked with Hockey Canada U22 female skating program, and since 2012 has been Hockey Canada's master skating instructor. Her personal performance coaching program is known for providing a foundation for her business owner clients to plan and create their next level future. Wow. And on top of all of this, she is the CEO of our life. She's a grandmother of two amazing grandchildren, and she is my anchor. She is the love of my life. She is an amazing partner. And I couldn't be more excited and nervous about the conversation that I'm about to get into with Stephanie Hanlon Francie. Stephanie Hanlon, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. It is so awesome to have you on the show finally. We got lots to talk about, but let's just start off with welcome. Thank you, Patrick. It's an honor to be here. Wow. You know, it's pretty amazing that we've been. I've been doing the podcast for just over a year now, and you, Stephanie Hanlon, Francie, have not yet been on the show. But it's pretty cool that you are now because, of course, we've got lots of things to talk about, not the least of which is your just recent return from the Olympics and your role that you played there. But so many things to talk about, so many things that I want people to hear about and know about you and your journey to where you've come. So. The best place for me to start, I think, is to give our listeners an idea of what the heck it is that you do, because it's pretty diverse, as you heard, or as they would have heard in this introduction. So why don't you recap for me? Tell me, what do you do? 
Well, that's a that's a big question, Patrick. What do I do? It really is about who I am and when I do it. So in the moment, um, coming back from the Olympics 2018 in Pyeongchang, I existed there as the performance coach for the French ice dance team and the U.S. ice dance team as a part of the EPMIS, the École Patinage Montreal International Skating School. And we take skaters and uh, we train them to compete from the inside out. Okay, so that in itself could take me on lots of different places, but I know that's not all that you do. Now, that's what you've done most recently. So I want to get into what is a performance coach and how do you interact with your clients, your athletes in this case? Because I also know that you're a performance coach for people who, you know, for entrepreneurs, for business people, for for top performers in careers. So I want to talk about that a little bit as well. But that's not all that you do. So keep giving me a little bit more background. I could answer for you, but I'm not going to. I'm tempted to, however. So you go. You go. What do you do? What do I do? Again, it depends on the day. Um, I'm the CEO of Skate Tech Group of Companies, which means the uh, conglomerate of Pro Skate, Skating Success, and Quantum Speed in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And we take high performance of skaters and skating to the next level. That's part of our vision as a couple, and it's also my vision as an individual. And that's one of the things I do. I um, daily look after our home and and take care of our our business of the Francie family. And the other things that I do are um, take care of the business of the businesses of the people and the clients that I have. I have real estate investor clients. I have business owners, athletes, anyone that wants to perform at the highest level. My gift is to be able to take their, what they do, eliminate a lot of the distractions and take them to the next level. So you've been the CEO of Skate Group of Companies for a while. Of course, Quantum Speed was the advanced skating programs that you've been doing now for 20 plus years. It's not just in Alberta. You've recently decided to expand into British Columbia as part of what's next for you. You are part of the school called ETMIS with uh, Patrice Lausam and Marie-France Dubré. Correct. And Roman Hagenauer. And that's who you were at the Olympics with. Correct. So where do we go with this particular conversation? Because I've got so many questions that I I want to get to with you because it's pretty remarkable what you've achieved and what you continue to do. But let's let's go back to some of your history because, you know, 25 years ago when you really got into the world of skating in terms of supporting hockey players and skating better on the ice, you know, being the best skaters they can be. That's actually what morphed into the performance coaching and and the mental performance side of it. But let's go back to that because you've worked for the Oilers, the Edmonton Oilers, you've worked for the St. Louis Blues. You were their skating coach for a number of years for both of those organizations. So let's go back even, let's go, let's start there for now. So tell me a little bit about how did the job with the Edmonton Oilers start up as their skating coach? Well, that's a funny story because my goal was to never really be a skating coach. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. All I knew it, I, I was only really good at two things, skating and talking. So early on when I started hiring, I hired a business coach and I did a bunch of work back in the early 80s. And I realized that I had to find a way to connect the things that I love to do. And really back then, there was no 
skating coach for the Edmonton Oilers job. There was no St. Louis Blues in my future. There was no Olympics for sure. So I just trusted the process. And one thing led to another. And one day I blew my knee out on a, on a ski hill in Jasper and ended up doing physiotherapy at the University of Alberta in the Glenn Sather um, Sports Medicine Unit. And a woman beside me that I'd gone to university with several years ago looked at me and said, oh, wow, you blew your knee out. Wow, that's a drag. Are you going to go for the oiler job? And I said, yes. What oiler job? And from that moment, I worked my way up the stairs into the phys ed department, into the grad lounge, and, and found the ad. They were looking for a strength and conditioning coach, which was my education at the University of Alberta. But I'd also been teaching power skating with the Okanagan Hockey School. And just because I love to skate and I love to teach and I love to see players get faster, I didn't really had any kind of, you know, overall intention regarding it. But I grabbed the, um, the ad and I spent the next um, two months putting my CV together that I submitted then to the Edmonton Oilers as their strength and conditioning coach. Uh, you had a interview with Glenn Sather. I did. And uh, he threw kind of a bit of a curveball at you, I guess you'd say, when you did that interview. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, I had been with the Okanagan Hockey School for eight years at that time, going through university, studying the stride, studying every course I did, every paper I wrote had to do with skating. I was interested in the kinesiology. I was, inter you know, so interested in the biomechanics and the physics of everything. So I got really nerd-like when it came to my resume. And then one thing led to another, and it was actually Kevin Prendergast that interviewed me first. And he was the director of player personnel, and, and he had come from Central Scouting, really, really smart man. And he knew a lot about what the players were needing at the time. And they weren't really needing just strength and conditioning and just power skating. What they were looking for was somebody that could connect the dots. So by the time that Kevin Prendergast and I had had the conversation, and he kind of had proved me, and then it was time for me to meet with Mr. Sather. Well, Glenn Sather, as most people know, is a very powerful man in, in hockey. He's smart. He's, um, he's committed. He's successful in the way that he allows people to do what they do. He throws them in the ring, so to speak, and allows the best to show up. And that's what he did, is that he didn't say to me, hey, Stephanie, there's a job here. He said, you know what? There is no job here. And I sat back in the chair for the first time and looked at him and went, well, what am I doing here? He said, we like what you say. We like who you are, but we're going to put you out in the ring and see what happens. And one thing led to another. He let me show up in a tracksuit with three sizes too big for me. He showed me how to perform. He told me some of the ropes. He told me about preparation. He told me about being on time. He taught me about the things that players would want to hear. And the first thing was, is that they, they don't want to be told what to do. So I said, okay, great. I will, I will do my best. I went downstairs and I spent nine years looking after players and their skating and their strength and conditioning in a way that looked after them. It could never be about me. Well, there's a couple of remarkable things about that. One of which is there was no job. You had to create it for yourself. You had to impress the players enough to, you know, for them to say, gosh, I really want Stephanie here during training camp or through the season to work with me to make sure I'm on my game to whatever, whatever that looked like. The other part of it is, is that you're female. You know, I've noticed that. I'm glad. Hopefully. <laughs> it's my, my weak attempt at being <laughs> funny. And I'm really happy that you are. Now, how did that 
how was that for you? Because we can, I want to talk about in a little bit, I want to talk about your award as a trailblazer, female trailblazer, your recent nomination for female entrepreneur. And I want to talk a little bit about that, but now you're female in a man's world. It's hockey. I mean, let's face it. That's what it's all about. Their trainers, their teams, their coaches, their management, their owners. I mean, gosh, it's all, it's a whole male world. So tell me a little bit about how that was for you and that experience and what you had to do to, why did you survive for nine years? What was it about you? Because you're, you're all female. You're a beautiful lady and you always have been. And how did, how did that go for you? Well, I think the biggest thing in, the, in starting out is that I actually didn't realize that being a female was going to be an issue. I just was so passionate and I loved what I was doing so much. And I was so committed to the results that they were going to get that I didn't put the female thing first. And I think because I didn't, I was looking, I was not looking for a job. I, I, you know, I wasn't looking for a date. I wasn't looking to get married. I wasn't looking to get laid. So I had this innocence about me and this commitment that I think that they really resonated with. And early on, especially with the farm team and the players that were, that were young, that were coming off the draft and, and really innocent and, and, naive in a sense, looking for support. Because back in the day, you know, a lot of the players were coming from different camps and different skating schools, et cetera, but they'd never really had somebody that looked at their off-ice conditioning and looked at their skating and looked at them as human beings and really didn't want anything from them. And I never did. I always wanted them to get better. And I think that's really what resonated with a lot of the players over the years is that I really, really wanted them to get faster. I think there has to be, you know, we have to point out here as well, is that you were not much older than those players at that time. So in some regard, you were a bit of a, you know, probably their dream girl. I mean, you were attractive, you were athletic, you were their age, you understood how to play hockey, you developed a wrist shot, you did all of the things. So there was a lot of, did you find at the time, was there a lot of, uh, did you have to put up a lot of resistance to perhaps the... I don't know, we'll call it the flirting that went on or the expectation as a female or the male-female in that environment. Was that something that you you bumped up against? You know, I, possibly. I don't know if I really noticed it as much as, as I, I do now looking back. I had a lot of fun with it. I was pretty confident. I was raised by a very powerful woman and a, and a, and a father, and I had a brother who played hockey up to the Western Hockey League, and he, he's coached all across North America. So I'm familiar and comfortable in that world. So if they were hitting on me or flirting with me, and I could I could give them back. You know, what they gave me, I gave them back. And it didn't occur to me that it needed to go any further. You know, and later on, when you and I were dating, you know, I had a great guy. So it didn't really cross. So the, the most fun was um, when two or three years after I'd left the Oilers, I got a text message from a player that played for the Oilers and he'd been playing in Europe. And he said, you know, I chose a different woman to marry because of you, because I never surrendered. I never slept with them. I never hung out. We never went to the bar together. I always knew my role. I stayed in my swim lane and I had a strong relationship with a powerful man and I had a strong family. So I never had to really drop my gear, so to speak, and and drop my values and not be true to who I was at the time. So I think that was the biggest thing. And that actually helped a lot of the guys because they looked at me and went, wow, maybe there are women out there that aren't just looking to get laid and aren't just looking for my money. So that's an interesting part of the conversation as well, because you were pretty you know, I'm back in those days, I remember very clearly. I mean, when you went to the ice, when you were working with the team, I mean, you were in a tracksuit zipped up 
to the chin and you had a pony tail and there was no makeup and there was no perfume and it was all business and you just showed up in your hockey gloves and your tracksuit and your skates and you just went to work. And so think about if you could, because this is really for me, the dynamic, uh, the difference. What do you think knowing today, if you, when you reflect, what was your mindset back then? Because it really was how you showed up. Now, we can have that conversation today and be very aware of how we're occurring and how we're showing up, how we're being, that kind of ontological conversation that we, you and I often have. But back then, do you think you were aware as, you know, do you, were you aware of how you were showing up? Was it intentional? Was there a real thought process to how you occurred for those players? Given sometimes at training camp, there was a hundred players, you know, forget about the big team and the, and the main team. When you were at training camp, there was a whole lot of guys trying out for the team and they didn't know you. You were just running these guys through their paces, trying to have help them impress the coaches. Wow. That's a really, really good question, Patrick. Um, did I know uh, back in the day what I, how I was showing up? Other than, you know, having a mother that said, never be one of the guys. Be yourself. You don't need to be one of the guys just be yourself. And as a girl, as a woman, I had to bring the skills and the qualities that I had to pull out what I needed to pull out so they could impress the players or could impress the brass. Did I know what I was doing? You know, I think so. I wanted to say yes. I want to say yes, that I had the consciousness. I was always ahead of the curve. There was some, some time where I wanted to fit in. You know, I wanted to be part of the team. I wanted to, I wanted to go to the dinners and I wanted to, to hang out and be invited to things. And, but what I really got to was that what was going on in the ice really was my wheelhouse. That's really where I could make a difference. I can make a contribution. So as much as I knew it was about me being a woman and, and, and them being, you know, 18 to 32 year old males and of course, with their, with at that time, the historical issues that I'm sure a lot of players had with females, I didn't put, I didn't lead with my sexuality. I didn't lead with my femininity. I led with my commitment. And I think that was the difference. Plus you're really smart. So that was probably in itself a little bit intimidating sometimes given your background and, and how committed you were to performance. So your focus really truly was, how am I going to make you better so that you impress the coaches and probably a win for them in terms of a coach coming up and saying, love the direction you're going. That's the way to take a stride. That's the way to make a play was also a win for you because of course, some of that was generated by the work that you did with them. Now you left the Oilers when you, that was in about what, what year was you 99, were, 99. Just you were when the Glenn Sather left to New York, mm-hmm. I was trying to retire. Right. Now you, now you left the Oilers and then you went to, uh, St. Louis. You had, you had the opportunity to meet Larry Plo, who you were doing a camp with, as I recall, was it in Thunder Bay? Thunder Bay, Ontario. Yeah. Correct. And that was never, that gig just showed up because you were just there running a camp and Larry Plo went, holy cow. And I remember this story. Can I share this story? Cause sure. this was really powerful for me was that Larry Plo, who was the, general manager of St. Louis Blues. He was sitting in the stands watching you run the players through their paces. And it was what, a 60 minute ice session? Yeah, 60 minute. 
Yeah, there was an hour and then we were, the Zamboni was coming out. Yep. Absolutely. So he watched you do that two or three days in a row. Mm-hmm. And then he came to you and said, okay, there's something about you. How is it that a five foot seven female can take a team of young men, athletes, hockey players, and command their attention without anybody saying anything? It wasn't like he went down or the coach went down and said, you got to listen to her. She, you just went down. They threw you on the ice all by yourself. There might've been an assistant coach to support you. I don't recall. I don't think so. And Larry goes, that was kind of the brilliance of Larry Plo. Cause he went, how does she command that kind of attention by a bunch of athletes? So that's a statement of character of you. That's a statement of your ability. And that's a statement of how you show up on the ice to command that kind of attention. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I would say that after the second or third day when I realized who he was and by then it was like, okay, well, either he likes me or doesn't like me. I wasn't on stage for anybody. There was actually four teams, the St. Louis Blues, the Los Angeles Kings, the Florida Panthers, and I want to say the Calgary Flames were all there. It was a, there was four teams there that we ran through. And when Larry Plo actually approached me, it was in the gym. I just we were just finishing up the ice time. The Zamboni gate was opening. The, the, <laughs> the Zamboni was driving out and the players were still on the ice and they were still talking and they were still asking questions and they were trying to kick us off the ice and the Zamboni drivers getting off and beeping the horn and Larry Plo standing in the corner. He's like, how come they're not getting off the ice? What's going on? So what happened was we, I, I wrapped up the session, got off, took my skates off, my tracksuit out, went to the gym like I always did, started my workout and he walked in the gym is where it happened. It didn't happen on the ice. He walked in the gym and he asked if he could spot me in my bench press. And I'd been working with a trainer uh, in the day, Craig Ellis, who was a oh, former, Craig, yeah, sure. yeah, he was yeah. a former Edmonton Eskimo and best trainer. I mean, I've had some great trainers, but he really got me on the track of learning about core stability and 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 really where my strength came from. And uh, I was, he asked if he could spot me on my bench press, and I didn't know who he was at that time. He was wearing like gray socks and a windbreaker and dark glasses, and <laughs> kind of creeped me out, but. After he helped me with my bench press and he, I sat up and I looked at him and he said, do you know who I am? And I said, no, I kind of did, but I, I didn't. And he looked at me square in the eye and he said, I've never seen anybody, regardless of a, you know, female, uh, like you say, five foot seven ponytailed girl command the attention. He said, would you come to St. Louis and work for the blues? And I, I didn't know what to say because you and I had just gotten married you know, in 96 and I was ready to, you know, settle down and live in Edmonton and hang out and chill with Aaron and build our businesses. Um, but in that moment, I realized that he saw me differently. He didn't see me just as a female skating coach that was looking to promote myself or to, to hang out with hockey players. He really saw something in me that maybe I didn't even see. So I said, yes. You know, there's so much that you've done over these years and that, that work that you did with the Oilers and the St. Louis Blues. I mean, and that was just part of what you were doing back then with player development and skating development and taking, you know, what you learned about the biomechanics of skating and all that, you know, all of the applications you had for that. I mean, you developed a whole program and 20 years later, Quantum Speed is an absolutely world-class program for hockey players. Now, the reason I want to spend, I spent as much time on this particular conversation is because it was really part of your development of what ultimately led you to two Olympics, really, you know, 2006 in, um, 
Torino and then just recently again in uh, Pyeongchang. Pyeongchang, sorry. <laughs> South Korea. <laughs> Mantle block, South Korea, uh, Pyeongchang. Now, and then a little bit of exposure when the Olympics were here in 2010 in Vancouver. Now, having said all that, now in St. Louis, in that particular camp, was was that the main team or was that the farm team? Wh- who was who was actually skating at that time? Well, I what happened was uh, Larry Plow had asked me to to just come and work within the organization, and he hired me. They sent me a contract, they sent me a visa application, etc. And of course, what happened in two thousand one that would have been the first year that I went is we were heading to training camp, and nine eleven happened. So the Blues were going to be doing their training camp in Alaska. So we were all supposed to be meeting, going through Boston Logan Airport, coming up to Alaska. So one thing led to another, and obviously it didn't happen. And there was a regroup, and it gave me a chance to pause and to really reevaluate what it is that I wanted to do. So when we finally regrouped and got together, it was mid-October, late October. the The season had just started, and I got flown to... Boston, and uh, a car picked me up and took me to Worcester, Massachusetts, which is where the farm team was. And the coach there was Don Granado, and the assistant coach was um, Steve Plow, which was Larry's son, which is Larry's son. And I ended up spending two weeks in the farm system. This was after, you know, training camp was a bit of a debacle, and everybody was regrouping, and we had lost, you know, one of our scouts um, with Edmonton, who was with LA, Ace Bailey, who um, was on flight um, 11, and we lost him in the in the towers. So there was a lot of emotional connection to what was going on at the time. And I had a chance to really reevaluate what I wanted to do. And where I really got I could make the biggest difference was at the farm team level. So I spent two weeks in Worcester and came back to Edmonton, came back home and said, you know what? I think this is what I want to do. I talked to Larry, I talked to the coaches, and I said, you know what, it'd be great to work with the, you know, Joel Quenville and the big team at the time, but really where I think I could make the biggest difference is going to be in the guys that want to get there. You know, that that level of here I am, but I want to go there and that commitment and the, and the next level performance. And I think truly that was the the foundation and the basis to the champion's journey. You, you, I mean, you created a great friendship and relationship with both Larry and his son, Steve Plo, and, and have stayed in touch over the years. And I know that you've probably lost touch recently, um, but over, over the years, you guys did a lot of really cool stuff, and, and that was lots of fun. Now, one of the things that I know that you discovered, minor league guys aside, in working with some of the NHL guys, you're, you're, you're dealing with players who have come to a place where they're playing at the NHL. I mean, they're already at an NHL level. And although they're practicing and their fitness is high and they're always looking to improve, it was with some interaction that you had with some really kind of key players and quite big name players. I mean, they were first and second line players, but you had some breakthroughs with them in that you realized that how do you take somebody who's skating incredibly well at an NHL level and I think you stumbled across it, I want to say innocently, I don't want to say accidentally, but innocently the realization that there was a mental side of the equation with professional athletes as well. So as much as they appear to be living the dream, and they are, they still have a life. They still have things going on. They have you know, relationships that they're 
stumbling around on. They probably have money issues, contract issues. They have their insecurities as well. Am I going to be traded? There's a lot of things that are going on in professional sport, not the least of which the pressure to perform. And, you know, I know you can't share the, the story with about who the player or players were, but you came to realize that when you help them get through some of the, we'll call it day-to-day baggage that they were carrying around so that they could show up on the ice and be fully present, all of a sudden they're better players and better skaters. Is that an accurate statement? I would, I would say that's 100%. And, and you're right. It was an innocent, accidental, you know, moment whereby I'd be on the ice with them because I could skate with them. I could keep up with them. We would laugh. We would joke. You know, we, we'd sweat, <laughs> you know, the guys would laugh, they'd trip me, we'd have a lot of fun. And one thing would lead to another and something would happen. There would be a blockage and they'd slow down or they'd fall or something would happen and they go, oh, God, you know, bleep, whatever, this is what's going on. And the more that happened and the more that they would share with me on the ice about what was going on in their lives, whether it was with their wives or their girlfriends or with their, like you say, with their contracts, I started to see that. If I could help them just move through whatever the issue was off the ice, I could help them skate faster on the ice. Because what was in their way was never generally the physics or the biomechanics. A lot of it was emotional. So it was emotional blocks. So I really committed at that time, early in the time with St. Louis, to learn about really the psychology of the game. And I started training as a you know a sports psychologist consultant. I, I got certified as an NLP master practitioner. I got, took all the personal coaching that I could because I knew I could reach them. They already trusted me on the ice. And then they started to trust who I was because I didn't want anything from them. And that was what was different. I wasn't the sports psychologist. I wasn't having to report to the general manager or the coaches. I was, I was independent. It was safe. So the conversation started happening to the point where I'd be on the ice doing the skating drills. And next thing you know, we would be discussing something that was going on with them personally and that would free them up it would just like all of a sudden it was like dropping a backpack of bricks and they would be fully present and it was quite remarkable so we realized that you know for the listener in this conversation that these players are young they're 18 to 25 27 30 was you know is was at that time pretty starting to get up there in terms of age but these were kids and aside, like I say, from them appearing on the outside to living the dream, they actually, they have a life. They have all the stories that they've got in the background. They're, they're mere mortals that are dealing with all the things that happen in life that happen to any of us. And that could be girlfriends breaking up, parents going through divorce, them going through divorce, money issues, all of the things that go on. Really what you became was a space what we, what you and I have referred to, and I know others do, is just holding the space for them to feel safe and and trust you to actually unload. So to dump some of the issues that they had. To your point, it's like dropping a box, uh, backpack of of weight, and then being clear. And then what you started to see on the ice was the lightness in their stride and the lightness in how they showed up on the ice. What started to happen for you after that? Now, you took some additional training. You took your NLP. You started, I think there was a time, I don't remember, we started working with uh, Dr. John Martini. You and I were reading a lot of that kind of, we were reading stuff, you know, Wayne Dyer, I know back at the time, Deepak Chopra. I mean, there was a lot of that work out there 
that we were following and you were then what taking it and applying it with your athletes? I was, it's very unconventional. I was, you know, too old to go back and get my master's degree or, you know, think that there was an academic way to this. This isn't an academic way. This was truly heart to heart. And I needed to find a way that I could connect from a place of credibility but also from a place of compassion and and non-judgment and and confidentiality because I really wasn't attached to the outcome and I wasn't attached to what was going on. So it was a very unique time where the players were able to look at me and meet with me, whether it was in Edmonton or in, in Worcester or in, you know, our farm team was in Peoria at the time or, you know, where on the phone, the, you know, Skype was just happening. I just started working with the ice dancers, for example, Mary France and Patrice, and, and they were living in Lyon, France. So I, you know, we were the first people on Skype. There was less than a million people on Skype back then. So I started using the same skills and the same technology and, and, and folding it all in and aligning it with truly what high performance meant. And this is back really in the early 2000s. And and what was high performance at the time? Well, to be the best in the world at something, you know, you had to be proof, you had to win a medal, you had to win a Stanley Cup. But my commitment was, well, if you were truly being who you were authentically and you wanted to be the best in the world at something, there's nobody better than you being you. And for an athlete to hear that, and for example, you know, I had one player who was really struggling. He was a Hobie Baker nominee and he was a first round draft pick. But he couldn't break the he couldn't break the top two lines. So based on that, I said, well, let's deal with what is. And I started the whole theory that, you know, my is, you know, your business is my isness and your isness, like let's deal with what is. And we started joking around about what is. And he was a really strong fourth liner. And his goal was to be on the first line. And I says, well, you know what? That's a big jump. I said, why don't we start with what is? And through the different work and the conversations, and we talked about what was going on and with his history and his pressure from his father when he was a midget and a junior player. And one thing led to another. I says, well, you know what, dude? Why don't you just be the captain of the fourth line? Let's just be the captain of the fourth line and see what happens. And sure enough, he took a leadership role and he, you know, watched himself on the whiteboard in the dressing room, move from the fourth line up to the third line. And then he became the captain of the third line. And then he really killed it on that. And then he moved up to the second line. And then for a couple of games, he was on the first line. And, and I remember one game, he ended up getting a hat trick on the first line. And I got a phone call from him the next day. And he said, you know what, just by dealing with what is, I was able to reach my goal. And being the captain of the fourth line will never be small. It'll never be, I'll never minimize that again. And when you deal with what is, and you can actually then take the next step. I remember that player in that scenario, but you actually, then you actually had him say, we're going to be the best third line or the best fourth line in the, in the league. And I remember hearing a commentator go, and this line, this line is the best fourth line in, in the, the league. league. <laughs> that was pretty <laughs> we had funny. Some good laughs. That was pretty funny. Yeah. So okay, so let's let's kind of once again, I I, I want to get grounded in a couple things. Number one, you're female. You're doing this thing in the NHL. You're in that space of ontological who you're being, how you're being. I mean, gosh, you're talking to a bunch of young hockey players. How are they even taking that on? Are they, and I, and I, and I know this is going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole because I don't want to miss it, but in a, a, while you're doing all of this, you're also developing a business called quantum speed. 
because as much as you were being paid, it wasn't like your, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, it was, you're being paid. It was okay. But ultimately in order to kind of create the income and the revenue that you and I both had aspires to achieve, you had to build a business and, you know, you're entrepreneurial and I was supporting that initiative and we were all over it and having fun with it. And you were growing a business called quantum speed while you were doing all that. So we're going to go there in a minute, but in the meantime, how did you find, do you think that was because you were female that they had a better listening for that ontological kind of, you know, airy fairy thought process, the mindset thing? Cause it was pretty new back then. And especially to the man's world called hockey. Yeah. You know, I think that's a really good point. The, the who you're being conversation, you know, started when I started we started with Louise Haywork and like you say, John Martini and Wayne Dyer and all that kind of side, you know, sidebar personal growth stuff, which I think is so for me was so powerful and so important. And, but I never used it as something outside of myself. I didn't say, Hey, well, you know, if you'd say this or you use the John Martini exercise here, I always folded it in. I used it. I used hockey language you know, I'm not above dropping the odd F-bomb, as all my clients know. I have a bit of a hockey mouth. I, I don't pretend that I'm better or different than they are. Yes, I'm female. And the interesting thing was as I got older and they kept getting younger, you know, maybe there was a mother thing going on, but I really don't think so. By the time, you know, I was in my mid-30s, you know, I'd had a reputation of of just really being an entrepreneur and, and entrepreneur and direct and funny. And I, you know, I, they'd wash my mouth out with soap now for sure, but it wasn't a game. It wasn't me trying to be somebody that I wasn't. I just, in order for them to be present and real and authentic, I needed to be that too. And I had to stop thinking that I was anybody special. And then I just dropped my ego and dropped my guard and just entered the space with them and had fun and, and, and became somebody that they could talk to and, and that they trusted. And <laughs> then as I started working again, you know, in the off season with, with young hockey players, I realized that there was something there that I needed to bring to minor hockey that I was learning from the pros that it, if the earlier that we could bring this to young hockey players, young athletes, the better that they're going to be as human beings going forward. You talk about that. And I know that there's lots of Stephanisms in all of the things that you do. But that's an interesting point because here you are, you spend all these years in hockey skates, working with hockey players, the development of young minor league players that you're actually bringing to the table, thought processes, training processes, attitude adjustments that work at an NHL level. And you're actually sharing that with young players. And I mean, young, you were starting, you, you like to enter the game around that 13, 14 year old, that Bantam age group. And one of the things that you used to say is, and you still use, I know is don't let hockey use you use hockey. And that whole thought process would actually be, you could use that in any sport. The point being that the chances of you hitting an NHL level or professional level are, are, are pretty minor, pretty slim, but at the end of the day, hockey is such, well, any sport, I'm going to just say that team sports, I think are so powerful in the development of anybody in their career and their future role as an entrepreneur, whatever that might be. 
So it's actually to support the parents in supporting the kids to actually use hockey. Don't let the game use you. And and we talk in hockey, but it could be in any sport. It's- yeah, the line I use is hockey is a vehicle for you to get what you want, whether it's a degree, a scholarship, an education, a job, fast chicks and hot cars, whatever, or hot chicks and fast cars, whatever you want, use it as a vehicle. Don't let it use you because hockey will chew you up and spit you out like any other sport. So if you don't know who you are in that and, and understand the values of you as a human being or, you know, understanding the commitment and the, and the support of family and, and, and what I call the circle of support, then it will chew you up and spit you out and you won't get what you want to, and you'll be a sad, sad person at the end of the journey. Well, and you know, certainly you and I know lots of players who actually have great careers and really cool businesses. And, and a lot of those opportunities opened up because they crossed paths with somebody that they played hockey with when they were 17 years old and, you know, in, in junior hockey and now they're 25 or 30 years old and they're actually crossing paths with that player, but they have such a relationship with them. It opens up the door to, a whole network of people that they knew back then. And that's really the business of hockey, I guess, in that regard. Well, they're, they're taught how to be team players. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, I would say life is a team sport. You know, life is a team sport. Mm-hmm. So when you've been taught how to play a team sport, whether you're the, the low man on the totem pole, the goalie, the defenseman, the first line star, whatever, it doesn't matter who what what role you played. When you learn how to be a team player, it shows up for you in life. You know, think about it. That's why fire departments, police departments, they go to universities, they go to Western Hockey League, they go, show me a great team player and I'll show you a, a really great cop or I'll show you a good fireman because they know that they're looking for the qualities of the person that knows how to support, knows how to be on a team, knows how to have your back. And if my life depended on some something, I would want a, a policeman or a fireman who's played hockey or football or, or soccer or yeah. something that's, yeah. that knows how to team. And of course, one of the things that you added to that over the years was the actual parent development and, you know, teaching parents how to be good parents in the sport and how to look after the kids and support the kids in a way, as opposed to being that parent that may be a little bit obnoxious or overzealous in what they think their parent or their kids are capable of in the sport. So we've, we've got that whole, a little bit of background and in, in, in the hockey world, you know, your business of quantum speed, uh, you've done that, but stop. Hold it. You just came back from the Olympics and it was with ice dance in the world of figure skating. You went to the Olympics in 2006 with the, you know, world champion, you know, ice dancers, you know, Patrice and, and uh, Marie France. So how did you go from hockey to figure skating? How did that unfold? And you know something, and you should tell me this one, sweetheart, because I, I really don't remember how that all unfolded. How did you end up there? Well, you know, crazy as it is, um, I guess I never looked at the hockey players as hockey players. I always looked at them as people. And when you look at somebody as people and not as, as a people, as a person, not just what they do, about who they are, there's a level of commitment and, and comprehension that I learned as I was growing. So as I got a little bit older and I was ready to maybe get off the the ice a little bit and I was starting to build the process and understand that I had to create a legacy program. I had to take what I'd learned in the NHL and create something that hockey players and, and power skating coaches and hockey coaches could actually use. So 
Back in the day, my apprentice, now business partner, Vanessa Hedinger, she and I sat, I remember, on the deck at in Kamloops and had a Bellini and sat there and said, okay, how do we turn what you've done over the last 20 years into a system and a process? So between the two of us, we started working on the quantum speed process, but it was player-based. It was always about putting the player in the center, who they were being, what they need, and, and then that's how we came up with the technique, power, and speed process. So scoot ahead a little bit, zoom ahead. You know, she and I are working on the quantum speed process, traveling around North America, having a blast, working with players. And I'm still trained in NLP and I've got my sports psychology consultant diploma and I've got this and I've got that and my phys ed background. And I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be a what what's next here somewhere in that. And then in 2001 or 2002, you and I joined Rain. I don't know if you remember. Um, no, I totally remember joining <laughs> Rain. Oh, by the way, that I've, that had on me. Told that story because it was everything that we had done or I had done, and it had given us and given me an opportunity to see the who I was being show up in a world called real estate. So I started to pay attention to the training and the learnings that I'd learned in Rain, and thought, you know what, it's it is time for me to retire and. I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. I just had met Larry Plo and was, you know, I was happy doing the per performance coaching and the skating with with St. Louis. And it was and it was great. And then, but looking ahead again, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not getting any younger. So what happened was we gave time and gave pause and said, okay, what does that need to look like? And how can we use real estate as a vehicle? This, this all came back to me just now because <laughs> I remember this now. So we had joined Rain. You were, in fact, going to back away from the whole NHL thing. And we were going to really dig into investing in real estate. We knew that that was the next place we needed well, to Well, we didn't go. have a pension. We yeah. didn't have- We had businesses. You know, we had businesses. And, we were- yeah. And we said real estate's going to be the vehicle. Yeah, and I was for, tired of selling my time in yeah. a sense. I didn't understand what that meant until I really had a context and a, you know, a definition of it. I do recall this because it had a really big impact on me because we jumped into the world of real estate and then it came to a screeching corner, which was when you had another opportunity show up. Well, no, no, no. Back yeah. up. Okay, I'll back up. Back but up. I, my it was, story's true. It was. It is true, but there's a there's a dovetail there. You were still at pro skate. I was still teaching power skating, selling my time. But you had a young figure skater who had just placed fifth at the Canadian Championships in I want to say 2002, and he mm -hmm. was ready to retire. And he'd be sharpening skates in his cowboy boots, eating Tim Hortons, you know, donut holes or whatever, and drinking coffee. And he, you know, he came in one day and said, you know. Patrick, I or Pat, <laughs> Patrick, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm done. I'm ready to retire. And he said, and you said to him, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, Ben, Ben Ferreira, I think you need to meet my wife. She's had a, a strong career in the NHL. She works with pro athletes. She's a RAIN member. She's transitioning. She's trained herself as a personal coach. Her commitment, remember the time I was creating something called transition coaching, mm -hmm. or I was training the gap, and I was all about, you know, athletes and what's going to happen after, and what about that gap, and I wanted to just really dig into that. So you said, you know, you should really talk to my wife. Lo and behold, you know, the buzzer goes at the front door, ding, and I walk in the door. Yeah, and it was you, and I was talking to Ben. He was actually, had come into the office and said, I got to go. I can't train as a competitive skater and work. And of course, him and I had had many conversations about his diet, which was just atrocious because he didn't know any better. And so I'd been working with him. Of course, I was always been, well, at, at that point in my life, I had really dug into just fitness and 
nutrition and all the rest of it. But when you walked in the office, I do remember that I was at a point with Ben where I just, you walked in, I said, Ben, meet Stephanie, Stephanie, meet Ben. And I walked out of my office. And that was really about the extent of the conversation that I had between the two of you. And I closed the office door and uh, you didn't come out till like three hours later. And, you know, Ben came out lighter, clearer, and he had had that experience of working with you and doing and going through the process that you go through and just in your conversation with him. And that really opened up the door to a whole bunch of things, right? It, it was like the tipping point. It was the fork in the road for Ben, but it was also a fork in the road for you. It was. And I remember when, you know, I left and he left and, and like you say, he was so much lighter, he was happier. And I'm like, wow, maybe I am kind of good at this stuff. Maybe I can draw on my experience. And it's not just for hockey players. Maybe this is a life conversation. So in that case, he was looking at, you know, real estate and retiring and what, what that was. So he'd basically quit skating. He'd shut his locker down at the Royal Glenora. He'd He'd let his, you know, coach know that he was quitting. One thing led to another. And he and I were really committed and working on the journey of the what's next. And with athletes, for professional athletes, especially the what's next is taboo. Sometimes it's, there's a superstition is you just don't talk about it. And I realized that I'd been talking about it for a long time with athletes and with hockey players that, and it's not taboo. And it's really, if you fold it in properly, it can be done respectfully and, and with a lot of vision and, and the, and the, seeds that get planted while they're competitive athletes and why they have some, you know, some limelight and some stroke in the world, use that, like use hockey, use figure skating, use basketball, whatever that is, so that you're starting to set up your career. So one thing led to another and Ben and I had been working together then for two and a half months. And um, I remember what had happened the Olympics in 2002 in Salt Lake happened. Two of the men that had were going supposed to go to Olympics, um, Emmanuel Sandu ended up hurting his knee. Elvis Stoiko retired, which opened up a place for Ben and Jeffrey Buttle to go, and they weren't supposed to go to Worlds. And I'm on the treadmill at the gym with Craig Ellis, and you know my cell phone rings, and um, it's Ben. And he says, uh, I just got a call from Skate Canada. Uh, I got invited to go to Worlds in Nagano. Do you want to go? And like I do, I go, Yes. <laughs> what does that mean? So I called you right away and said, um, I'm thinking Ben would like me to go to Japan. We have to figure this out. Skate Canada called and, and do we have enough points? Cause they can't, you know, obviously he can't afford to take me. So you went on aeroplan or whatever. And you said, sure. When? And I go tomorrow. And yeah, it was really fast. Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was like, holy cow. and the next yeah. day Ben and I were flying to Nagano. Well, that, that in itself is a really cool story because that opened up a whole different door. And, and uh, gosh, I mean, your story is to me so fascinating and I keep giving you a hard time about you write a book about it because it really is fascinating. And that then led you to working to Skate Canada, seeing what the work you'd done with Ben. It opened up the door to have a conversation with Skate Canada, which then. They invited opened- me to speak at their national team weekend in Victoria. And that's when Marie France and uh, Patrice Lausanne said, you're a cool lady and we want to work with you, which then led to the Olympics in 2006. And then with them, because you worked with them for what? Was it for four years? Yeah. 2003 was my first world's uh, nationals uh, worlds. And then we went on the journey with the Grand Prix events. And I learned all about the journey that it takes to get to the Olympic games. And there was no certainty. You know, I wasn't a skating coach. I'd had no credibility in that world. I was, you know, in their world, I was just going to mentor them. Um, to the Olympics. And, and when they asked me, if would you do that after this national team weekend? I said, sure. Yes. What does that mean? You know, it's the whole say yes first and then figure it out later. So that's like the third time in my career where I just said, sure, let's do this. 
And there was no expectation. I just did the work. They had just let their coach go. They had moved to France, actually, from Montreal. So they really didn't have a lot of support. They they hired a coach uh, in France that they'd worked with in, in the past years with choreography, Muriel and uh, Roman Hagenauer, who's now their partner at Atmos in Montreal. And you know, there was no expectation. We just did things on Skype. We met. We um, we talked. We did. I, it's a journey I call the champion's journey, um, the courage to be a champion. And we just spent every Sunday three or four hours on the phone, on Skype. And then one, one thing led to another. And, you know, nationals happened to me in Edmonton the next year, which we where we lived. And they said, well, that's convenient. So somehow they got me an accreditation. They got, you know, we ended up working together. There was no big picture. There was no, you know, evil plot, you know, to take over the figure skating world. It was just commitment. I loved them so much. And they loved the work that we were doing. And we were just committed. We were in our bubble. Muriel, who was one of the best coaches in the world, she had coached the um, Olympic champion ice dancers the year before in 2002 and beyond. And she was working with them. And there was just a, a commitment and a connection. And all, we had fun. Really, we laughed. And we, you know, we, we discovered things together and, and one thing led to another and they ended up taking me to Olympics in 2006 as their Canadian coach. And that's, you know, just to be clear, right? You're not a technical coach at that point. You're really their mental performance coach. You are working with them on all the things that get in their way. You're working with competitive athletes that split seconds and quarters of a points and, you know, thirds of a second and all of the things you're splitting hairs. And really the difference is often not technical. It really is how they are approaching the competition, how they're getting in the right frame of mind for it, how they're setting up their vision, what they're getting grounded to. You did all that work with them and behind the scenes. But also part of that work, as I recall, was that you at that point were a little older, more mature. You know, you also had some business acumen, so you were... You know, you'd built your businesses, you were pretty savvy in that world. So you were also able to support them and in, in how they dealt with the business side of being an athlete as well, which is not necessarily common either. That was a real difference in how many approached it. Yeah, that's true. And that's why it was different when, you know, I got challenged on not being a sports psychologist and not having a master's degree and not getting certified as a skating coach. And there was a lot of negativity and a lot of pushback. And I got that, you know, there's a lot of people have put a lot of time and energy and years and education into, into being in the position that I was. So I always, always respected that. I didn't, I didn't take it for granted. I, I never took it for granted. And, but that wasn't what I did. So the conversations that we were having were about removing the blocks, no different than I was doing with the NHL hockey players, removing the blocks, what's in your way, how do you get authentic, how do you get real, and the truth is, what do you want to do, what are we doing this, what are you anchoring to, what are you linking to, what's your future state going to look like? If you're in this figure skating world and ice dance, there's not a lot going on in ice dance after you, um, you know, win an Olympic medal, unless you're going to coach or be a choreographer or whatever, so is there a bigger why? So we started before the Olympics, probably in 2005, 2006, to talk about what that why could be and, and who they wanted to be. And they saw a lot of things that were going on that they didn't like in figure skating and a nice dance in the world of sport. It just wasn't in figure skating. But they saw some things that they wanted to change. And I said, okay, well, let's anchor to that. Let's see what we could build, what you guys can create. And let me and you, Patrick, help them 
create and anchor and link to the future. And one of those things was in 2005, a conversation that we had before Olympics, and then another one in 2006, and then 2007, about, okay, what if we could create an ice dance school that was second to none, nothing like it in the world, attract the best and the best, and, and not have to follow certain rules and really, really bust through the barriers and teach athletes how to be the best in the world and be champions on their own terms. That started in 2005. I remember the work that we did with Patch Marie back then. I mean, they were actually coming along on our journey as well because we were kind of taking them uh, down a path that we had discovered and that we were learning and that they were applying to their life and, you know, all of the things that were going on at that time around that. But I think for you, what I believe and what I see is that through that whole time as a coach that you had really learned how to park your ego. It really was never about you. It was always about the athletes. It was always about the kids. It was always about them achieving their goals. It was always about what you needed to do to support them in being successful. That's how I saw it. Was that just your nature? Did you see it the same way? Was that something consciously that you did or how did that show up for you? Was there a, a place where you went, this has to be about the athlete. It can never be about me as a coach because you and I know both know in sport, the coaches can find themselves in the limelight as the coach of the great athlete. And all of a sudden the athlete is secondary to their profile. You were never there. Was that a conscious thing, do you think, or is that just the nature of who you are? You know, I, I'd, I'd like to say it is, um, but I, I don't think I'm that awesome. I know whenever I did make it about me, something happened, <laughs> something negative, something, you know, I wanted it to be. I've got a huge ego too. You know, I, I want to be successful. I want to be seen. I need to be acknowledged. I have all those same qualities. But when I really got into the world and saw the vulnerability and saw who they had to become and what they had to do to be the best in the world, it was more important to me for some reason, maybe because I was older and maybe because I'd done the work with Demartini and and with Dr. Paul Stoltz and and the Rain work, all the work that we, the personal work. I mean, Rain certainly was never just real estate investing for me. There was so much personal development that I learned. Is that if I didn't park my ego, if I didn't put them ahead of me, then they wouldn't get what they want, and that became more important to me in the long run, one hundred percent than me. Even sitting in what's called the kiss and cry. I remember standing there, you know, with one of my clients on the outside holding his jacket, you know, and not just having no need to have any limelight. And for me, someone that has a big ego and who has a big personality, for me to not need that was to me very important, humbling. And, you know, a, a key message is that when coaches do need to make it about them, they're in the wrong job. When I see some of that, and I see this in business all the time, and of course, uh, as you know, I do lots of coaching over the years with business owners and real estate investors and others, but ultimately, where I see, we all need significance. I mean, that's often what we work for. We, in our case, we're really clear that we need to be a contribution. We need to make a difference. That's probably one of our highest values is to is to be a contribution and to make a difference. That's really what fills us up and that's where we get. We gain our significance though, I believe, when our clients win. So we make it about the client and actually our significance, our contribution, our fulfillment is really only achieved when they win. If they lose, we lose. Mm -hmm. 
that's how we, I think, look at it. And oh, I know yeah. that's how you look at it. 100%. Now, you also work with, this is, you know, it's interesting is that you're my second Olympic champion interview because I actually worked with, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Leon Taylor, who was a silver medalist in uh, diving for Great Britain. And he went on to, and he's gone on to be a great coach, a speaker as you are, and uh, coach as you are in business. What's the overlap, I guess, between sport and world-class sport? Because that's a big deal. I mean, it's, you're, you're saying the best in the world. It's not a hockey tournament where a team wins. You know, this is the best in the world. So how do you take, and what, what rules still apply in the world? So if, if as, as the listeners are, what should they be learning about professional sport versus being a business owner, being a career-driven person? What where's the overlap for you? How does it, how do you, what you do as a coach with athletes translate to business owners or top performers in a career? Hmm. Wow. You know, I met Leon with you know same time as you in St. Lucia and got a chance to to meet with him as well. And amazing man and and the qualities that he has, I recognize in the qualities of the athletes that I work with and the, and the truly the best in the world, the top, you know, 1% of the 1%. And when I started to, you know, dabble in it back in 2003, 2004, thinking that I might have a way to contribute, I didn't have any credibility. I didn't know truly what I was getting into. I, you know, I was kind of a nobody in any of that. I didn't, I've not won a medal. <laughs> you know, I don't have a Stanley Cup ring. So really, I had to deal with a lot of my own, who the heck do I think I am stuff, which is grounded in what they call the fraud, what they call the, the who do you think you are conversation. And I think for me, when I work with top performance in business or in, in sport, that's the first thing they deal with is that, who am I? I don't, I don't deserve to be wealthy. I don't deserve to be like a millionaire. I don't deserve to be a gold medal winner. So if I can work with that fraud, fraud to fraud. I go there. I said, you know what? I'm a fraud too. You know what? But here's the deal. When you're committed and you're willing to do the work and you're willing to do whatever it takes, be willing to be misunderstood, to get the heck out of your own way, to make a contribution in the world that you can, that you can leave a mark, that you can leave a legacy, then we can have the conversation. But we're all frauds. And that really started a new conversation. You know, I'm working now with, you know, American champions, Canadian champions, Danish champions, Spanish champions, French champions. They all want to be the best in the world. And we all have the same conversation as what the heck? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. So if we just start there and say, okay, let's start with the, I don't know. Let's start with the, I don't know and build. And then we can remove any of the ego, any of the issues, any of the insecurities and just say, okay, Let's just put in place who you want to be. And then we create what's called the champion's journey and the champion's legacy. And here are the qualities that I see. And here are the qualities that you see and who you want to be. And let's just focus on that. You know, you coined the phrase, in my world anyways, the champion's journey. And when you look at the champion's journey, you've now done it enough times that in whether it be in sport or in business, do you think, is that something that you've got dialed in? Do you think it's the same journey? Only it's, I mean, it's always individualized, but ultimately, do you think it's the same path? Do you think it's the same journey? 
they're having the same conversations. So when you're working with some cool business people, are you having a similar conversation only it's business, not sport? I am because I don't see the difference. You know, I don't, I don't see the difference between business and sport. If you want to be the best in the world or something at something, you want to be making a difference, leaving a legacy. It's the exact same conversation. One has a medal and a podium at the other side. One has maybe a, you know, a balance sheet that has a bunch of zeros on it. Whatever your podium is, whatever your podium is, I believe that there's a journey to get there and it's way faster than you think. And the biggest thing is, and the hardest thing is just to start. Now, I want you to share a story. You don't have to name the player if you don't want, and I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but you had a conversation many years ago with a player that was in the press box and looking down. And I don't know if he was benched for the game. He's still a rookie at the time. I mean, he turned, he came, he went on to be a star and certainly well, well known in the world of hockey, but you actually had the conversation with him was very young and he was yeah, he was a healthy scratch yeah, healthy with scratch. the Oilers yeah. every game for two weeks. And he's like, I, I think I need to know what a healthy scratch means. Yeah, he was a young man <laughs> yes, at the time. And, uh, and and so anyways, the, so share with me the story that, you know, you drew that out in a napkin with him. And I think it's such a powerful story because it was also a, it really opened up a door for you into conversations with players. It's an example. And I think it's a good story because I think that even to this day, you and I have used that same I guess that same model, if you will, for business people and really anybody who perhaps is stuck or just getting in their own way, so to speak. So share that story that you're up there, you're in the press box, he's a healthy scratch, he's trying to figure it out, he's scratching his head, he's young, he's probably 19, 20 maybe? Yeah, he just was drafted, so he's just 19 turning 20. Yeah. And he's stuck, so you, you know, you take a pan and you take a napkin. napkin. Actually, it had a popcorn, you know, butter grease napkin. Yeah. And um, we started having a conversation and I would remember because I'd worked with him in practice the last couple of, you know, before this and he would skate by and he'd go, how am I doing? How am I doing? How's my skating? And he was looking for a significance and acknowledgement and he would jump out of his body and go, how am I doing? How am I doing? And I'm, I'm like, dude, just focus on yourself, focus on what you're doing. And I, and I, you know, and it, it actually, it made me push him away. It made me not want to work with him. Just how hard he was trying. It was like trying too hard guy. This is where I sort of come up with a term back in the day. I was like, you know, you go to the bar and there's a guy who wants to buy you drinks. He's trying too hard. You know, he was like trying too hard guy on the ice all the time. So sure enough, um, there's a, an, a game and I'm up in the press box sitting with a couple of the, the media guys that I know. And I had moved over to, I'd had a certain lucky chair that I sat on. And so I, it was halfway through the first period and, and he came up and had a, a big thing of popcorn and basically said, Hey, how am I doing? I said, you know, buddy, sit down, sit down, let's have a conversation. So we shared a bucket of popcorn and we're talking and I, one thing led to another and I was watching his body language and watching him wanting to be on the ice so bad, seeing himself out there, visualizing, doing all the things that you're there told to do in the psychology class. And I said, you know what? I think we need to have a different conversation. And so I grabbed a pen, a little Sharpie and, um, took the napkin and had all the popcorn stains on it. And I drew a circle and I said, okay, here's the circle. Let's say this, this is your life. This is, this is the team. This is, this is the game. And I drew a circle and I said, here's the pen. Show me where you are on this napkin. And no word of a lie. He took the Sharpie and he put it right at the top of the napkin. Like I'm at the top right here. And 
you know, I'd done a bunch of work with athletes and skaters and hockey players and stuff. And I've never seen anybody not put themselves inside the circle. And that's when it hit me is that he was so into what other people thought and how other people were thinking and what he showed up as externally that he wasn't even inside his own life. So when I described and I, 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 I restated the question, I said, okay, here's, this is your life now. Take the Sharpie and put an X where you are. And he couldn't do it. He still didn't get it. And I went, okay. So, so then I said, okay, well, I drew a heart in the middle of the, of the circle. And I says, you know what? I'm going to say, let's put you right in the center for a second. And he got really kind of emotional. He's like, I can't, I, that, well, I can't be there. That's not me. I, that's really uncomfortable. And I went, okay, well, just go with me. Let's play the game. It's just a game. It's just an exercise. I took the Sharpie and I drew the heart and I said, and I put his initials in there. I said, you know what? Let's, let's just say this is you. And right now I'm talking to you and you're the most important person right here. He's like, oh, there's the game and there's 17,000 people and there's the media and there's the fans. And I went, you know, but you know, dude, just you and me right now. And his energy softened and he kind of got quiet. And I said, so I drew the heart and I said, let's say that's you. He goes, okay, I get that. And then I drew a star around the heart. And I said, you know what? Let's call that your performer self. Let's say, you know, that's the hockey player. Good. That's the guy that goes out and does the, you know, first line, second line. That's the guy that goes to the bar and goes dancing and gets the goals and first line and first star. And I said, that's your performer self. He goes, well, like I'm fake. I go, no, 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 no. Your performer self is the authentic side of you that you give the world to judge. You give the world to judge, whether it's the fans or the media or your coaches. They're not judging you. They're not judging your heart. They're not judging. They don't know what you're thinking. I know you think thoughts really, really loud and you think everybody's seeing you. And when you skate by and say, hey, Stephanie, how's my skating? You think that you're actually drawing attention to you, but that's really not your authentic self. That's your ego. I said, so I'm going to draw this for you. So I drew the star and I said, okay, so who's supporting your star right now? And he said, well, I don't know what you mean. So we, I walked him through it and I said, well, if your heart's safe, truly, that they can't hurt you. And if you're being truly authentic and true to yourself and, and, and screwing up and, and having fun and doing all those things, but you're safe and they can't hurt you if you're being real. And who are they? And he's like, oh, wow, cool. So we worked backwards through it. And he says, I said, so who's supporting your star? He says, well, my girlfriend and my, who's now his wife, um, my parents and well, my you and I said, well, yeah. And who else? And he goes, well, how about my teammates? I go, no, they have their own star. They're protecting their own selves. So let's put your teammates. So I drew a square around the star and then I drew a circle around the square. And what I told him was I said, this is your circle of support, but you have to stay in the center and you have to protect yourself from the external distractions and all the things that are going to take you away from your goal and from what you say you want, which is to be the best you can be. And I see your gift. I see your skill. Everyone sees how good you are, but they can't because they can't do anything with it because you're jumping outside of your body all the time and you're wanting it and you're in your ego and you're trying too hard. And he really, really got it. And he said, so if I just focus on being myself, 
and looking after what I need to look after, my fitness, my nutrition, all the things that I need to protect my star. And it wasn't like a star, like I'm going to be famous. It was like, I just defined it as a performer self. And then the square was, you know, who's supporting you? You've got a trainer and you've got your sports psychologist and you've got your pro skate was doing your skates at the time. And then you've got your skating coach. And then the circle and the circle was the fans and the media and the agency and the community and a bigger picture. So it worked inside out and outside in. And by the end of the game, he's sitting there with this napkin soaked in butter with Sharpie on it, looking at it going, yeah, I, I get this. I get this. And honestly, within the next couple of weeks, he was flying. He was scoring goals and he was, you know, he grew a mullet and all the things that he wanted to do. And he had a really bad beard because he was only like 19, but he wanted to grow it. He started being himself, not trying to be somebody for somebody else or trying to be different. And, you know, I, you know, one thing leads to another. He ends up being a big star on the, you know, Canadian Olympic team one year and and then we ended up, you and I, I don't know if you remember, we were at a wedding. Do you remember this? Yeah, 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 totally. We were at a wedding of, of one of his teammates and we'd been invited because he was friends with you and, and myself. And we were sitting obviously with the brass or, you know, some grownups over here and, and he saw us and uh, he came over. Ah, I'm going to cry. And um, he had been married for a year and he, uh, two years and he had just had his first child at that time and he'd been with the Oilers for quite some time. And he sat down, kind of kneeled down between you and I, and we're chatting and, and we're laughing. And I was already with St. Louis at the time, I think. And we were talking about the old days with the Oilers. And he says, I have to show you something. And uh, he's like, okay. And he pulls out, you know, old school, he pulls out his wallet and he reaches into his wallet, into the dollar bill sign. And he pulled out this piece of paper and I, he opened it up and I was like, wow, that's really bizarre. And sure enough, it was a piece of paper. It wasn't the actual napkin because, of course, it would have been destroyed after like 10 years later. But he had a piece of paper with the exact drawing on it with his initials in the heart mm. and a star and the square. And he carried it with him his entire career. Yeah. And what's interesting about that player was that he was really known for being that authentic guy. And he became to be that leader with the teams. So that that whole but that whole scenario once again that really became a one of the I don't know what you'd call it but you use that for your athletes you use that for your your business people, business people mm -hmm. and all the things that you do so very cool how that all has you know and I and I've been witness to it I'm I'm still you know often as your husband blown away by what just seems to manifest in your world and what you're able to accomplish and all the things Thanks. that you do. Let's go back just a little bit briefly. I mean, we, we haven't touched base on, you know, the whole show, the premise of the show, as you know, is really seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results and, and you couldn't be any more, uh, ordinary, know, ordinary, <laughs> <laughs> but certainly growing up, I mean, you were young, you were brought up on the wrong side of the tracks, not quite as wrong side as me, but you had great, you know, your parents, your mom and dad, Paul and Joyce are awesome, awesome, awesome. And, uh, they were really instrumental in your life. And your mom was a very powerful lady in terms of who she showed up as. I mean, powerful as in she achieved a lot of things as well. And uh, so tell me a little bit about the, your, your history in terms of how you were brought up. What do you think it was about your, your parents, the way they raised you, that had you kind of evolved to be who you are today? Well, that's 
funny because when you talk about my mom, you know, she taught me to never, like I said earlier, never be, try to be one of the boys, just be yourself. You know, you'll fit in or you won't fit in. Um, she was the, you know, director of computer operations for the provincial government, the highest position in the government, in the IT world. Can you imagine back in the seventies, eighties? And my dad, you know, amazing man. He was an engineer, drove a train. Uh, he was on the road a lot. But what was interesting about the two of them is that they really honored each other. You know, my dad didn't see her. He didn't have her on a pedestal. My mom didn't have him on a pedestal. They worked together. They were partners. They they shared the joy. They shared the drama. They shared things together. So they didn't show us sort of a distinction between man, woman, mom, dad, male, female. There was just partners. So I didn't know that, you know, a wife had to be, you know, beneath her husband, or I didn't know that a man had to, you know, do this or that or be the breadwinner. And I only knew partnership. I only knew friendship. My mom and dad were, are, and still are best friends. And when they raised my brother and I, they raised us in a way from a place of contribution. They were older when they had us, ish, you know, my dad was in his mid thirties. Um, my mom was 25 when I was born. So that's back then. That's, that was pretty uncommon. That's Much uncommon. More uncommon yeah. But they had it. They had a different reason for having kids. You know, I remember them telling us when I was in my early teens, late, late teens ish saying, you know, we had kids because we, we knew that if we had kids and raised them well, they would make a difference in the world. You know, they didn't have kids because they wanted to see themselves as little mini me's walking around. They had kids because the planet needed us. And that's how they raised us. They raised us with going to Disneyland because it was a memory, not because they told their friends they were going to Disneyland. You know, they started doing personal development work back, you know, telling us they were going bowling, you know, but they were really going to do a workshop on personal development. And I'm sure they went bowling too. But they they were committed to things that most people weren't. And they were outliers and, and they were willing to be misunderstood. And my brother and I were raised in that environment and believing that we could do and be anything we wanted to be. And we didn't have a whole ton of money. We, we, you know, we bought, they bought the best house they could in the best neighborhood at the time with the least amount of taxes and on the North side. And we were raised, you know, with good values and, you know, processed cheese and spam and, you know, <laughs> chicken dinners. And, you know, we, it wasn't anything that was over the top. And, but what they did give us was the values and to treat each other with kindness, the golden rule to put others ahead of us. So I think that's what kind of has risen up over the over the years as much as I've battled with my ego and wanting to be special. I, I just realized that I'm not, I don't have to be if I'm doing the best I can and making a contribution. And now my brother's a partner in our businesses. So like, how, how good is that? It can't get any better than that. That is really, really spectacular. So you, you came up, your parents were awesome. Your brother was a, an athlete, young athlete too. He's a cool, cool guy. You've got a great family. I, I just know that somebody once told me that when you marry the woman, you marry the, marry the family. And, and when I met your, your mom and your aunt, I went, okay, this is cool. <laughs> this is, he's all in. So that was back then. You're award-winning, medal-winning, successful entrepreneur. You are an amazing wife. You're now a grandmother. You've, you've accomplished so many things, but just recently you're sitting with the French team, Gabriella and Guillaume, in, and they just skated one of the best performances ever. They won silver, could have easily been gold, 
short of the slight dress glitch, you know, equipment glitch, I guess it was. How was that for you? How did that, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there and also knowing that your team, Roman, Patrice, Marie France had, you know, you guys had, the school had two teams, podium. I mean, a gold. Three, was, actually. Three. Yeah, you're right. The US. Three yeah. in the U.S. So gold, silver, bronze. How is that for you? How does that make you feel? Now, consider that if you're looking for significance, if you're looking for achievement, I mean, you've, you've, you've nailed it. So here you are, you're still a little bit upside down from time zones. That's how, you know, how recently you've done that. How are you feeling about it? Like, what is it for you? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I'm still overwhelmed. I'm humbled. I'm gobsmacked. Um, you never know for me, I never know going into an Olympics or going into a, whether it's an NHL practice and the, you know, the, coach tossed you the whistle and the keys to the dressing room and next thing you know you're running an NHL practice it's the same thing it's it's the unknown and what I've learned to do is to embrace the unknown and and to not just embrace it but just to really milk it and own it and and create from the unknown instead of just going okay I know this is what's happening and because I come in with that attitude I, I don't have any expectations and so with this particular Olympics in Pyeongchang is, was phenomenal, knowing that we had the three top teams going in without expectation, knowing that for sure the first two, the French and the Canadian, were going to be first and second. And, and my hope was that the Americans, Hubble and Donahue, would be third. And that's how it happened after the short dance. What had happened before um, with Gabriella is that her uh, halter came undone. And about the first three or five seconds into the program, and I, honest to God, almost died on the spot. I, I've never had that feeling in my life. I, I now look at the the footage and stuff, and my I see my face. I see my hands are in front of my mouth. I'm like I'm screaming into my hands. To me, we'd done everything from you know, aligning her blades and getting her proper tights to the dress, to the training, to the mindset, to the hair, to the doing everything to make sure that this team would have every opportunity to go to, to win no different than, you know, the other teams, but this team is truly unique. It's they're beautiful, beautiful souls, beautiful people, young, 22 years old at the beginning of their journey. And to have this glitch happen and have it be the reason that they end up silver, which is not bad. Get, don't get me wrong. I mean, winning silver and winning the free dance and coming second in the world, especially to, you know, the most decorated ice dancers, bigger skaters in the world, Scott and Tessa, Scott um, Moyer and Tessa Virtue, who also train at the school in Montreal. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but that level of adversity and for Gabriella to wake up the next day and for her and Guillaume to skate a perfect free dance. To me, that shows the quality, the level of integrity, the mental toughness, who they are as people. And that's what that school is grounded in. And, and I think back to 2005, you know, 2006, when we were saying, okay, let's build a nice dance school that's second to none, that has the best in the world, values-based. They get to be who they are. They can be as crazy, as wild, or as weird, or as whatever, and we're going to train them to be. So my commitment back then, and when people say, how can you be training, you know, the Spanish champions and the Danish champions and the American champions, the French, it's because I train, I train them all to win, all of them. And when you win on your own terms, you win. And regardless of what happens, the external, you know, leave room for the magic, something's always going to happen. 
But if you are committed and for us to train them all to win means the result then is up to them. And then whatever happens on the day, whether it's a halter dress or a fall or something, then they get to own that as well, knowing that they're fully supported, fully trained and fully loved. Now you're, it's interesting around all of this for me, when I look, you know, and I reflect on your, your journey to where you are today. So it's not like you came, you know, you didn't grow up thinking this is what I wanted to be. This is something that evolved and unfolded. Was, was there goals that you had set? How did, how did this show up for you? When you think about people, they want to set goals, they have this outcomes and they want to make this much money and they want to have this much in their business and they want to, that's not how you and I generally operate. And I don't want to speak for you. So just how do you hold space for what outcomes you've had? Cause you've just really, really rocked so many things you've worked hard, but it's not, how do you goal set? How is it that show for you? Do you think? Well, it's funny, you know, you say goal set, I don't goal set, you know, I don't even with my clients, we don't do goal setting. Um, The context I use is we do goal getting, (laughs) you know, we're going to goal get. So what do you want? But how do you, as a person, who do you have to be to live the life that you want in integrity with yourself to have the outcome that you want? So it's a lot of words. But the truth is, what I've learned is that the more you want something, this wanting, 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 the more it pushes it away. You know, we visualize and we want and we want and we want. I want a Ferrari and I want a gold medal and I want a Stanley Cup and I want, I want. And it's like this ache and this push and this negativity that makes possibly makes us do stuff we don't really want to do or, or stuff that we aren't real proud of. So I've just decided to do the opposite. So with myself and with my clients, I have, I have outcomes, I have experiences, I have definitions, um, I ask questions, I discover, I give them space to decide and to tell me who they want to be and how they want to show up, who they want to be in partnership with their, with their partner, with their, with their significant other, with their coaches. And the, the biggest line is, you know, if, if you're not getting what you want, let's take a look at how you're being. And for the last couple of weeks before Olympics, you know, for one of my clients, I had to say, okay, well, we need to behave ourselves to the Olympics because right now your behavior sucks and this isn't working because it's not who you say you are. So if you were going to be a champion, if you are going to be a champion, what behaviors and what actions do you think a champion would, without being fake, without being a fraud, but what behave would these behaviors that you're doing and, and, and who you're being right now, would you be proud of yourself? And he, the couple, the, the, the man of the couple said, you know, no, you're right. And I, I, but it doesn't feel right. And I said, you know what? Feelings lie. We're not, we can't go with how we feel at this point. Feelings lie. Feelings are not the truth. So we need to behave your way to the podium. Let's, let's figure out some behaviors, even if it's not true. It's not fake until you make it. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not that. It still has to be true. But what we can control right now going into the eye of the needle called the Olympic Games is our behavior. So as we get a little bit into that, we're getting a little bit long here on the show because once again, I think we may have to do a part two, but let's, let's start to, what do you need to say? What would you want to share with our listeners today that if you wanted them to take away something from this conversation, is there anything that stands out for you? Do you need some time to think about that? Uh, yeah, no. 
I'm good. It's mindset. A lot of everything we do is for me in the success of what I've done, whether it's financially, business-wise, turning a business around, taking you know couples to the podium, taking business owners through their own journey, is mindset. And it doesn't mean you have to be super strong, mentally tough. You know, that's not it. It's truly committed and having the courage, you know, the courage that it takes to, to do things that other people aren't going to do or aren't willing to do and to be willing to be misunderstood. So those are the things that I can get grounded in with my clients and I can get grounded in with myself. It's what you and I talk about when we're freaking out and things aren't going well, or we're having to work things through is that, you know, are we in alignment together? Are we on side? Do we have our spiritual partnership in alignment? Are we committed to the same things? And if we're not, let's go clean that up. Let's go figure out where the gap is, where the block is, where the energy leak is. So actually work backwards. If I can say anything that maybe can help is to to work backwards from what you want and notice where the energy leaks are. Notice where you could be potentially out of alignment with what you say. You know, I always say if you want to lose five pounds, but you're sitting there eating a Snickers bar, you're out of alignment. It's as simple as that. It's uh, interesting that you actually, you know, got me started. I don't want to say you started me on the journey, but you certainly extended my journey with all the work that you were doing. And then you and I really dug into it many years ago. As you are witness to, I have my practice every morning and I'm journaling or I'm working out or I'm meditating or I'm doing all the things that that's my practice and has been for many years, as you know. You've also had a practice, but yours is a little different than mine. And do you want to share with people where where are you at in your own practice? Do you, what is your practice? You mean my, like, w- what are my habits? What are, yeah, what? what are your habits? How do you start your day? What is it for you? You know, uh, how do you how do you work on how do you do the work on yourself? What kind of things are you doing that is consistent? Well, consistently, I meditate. I practice transcendental meditation (TM) twice a day, twenty minutes twice a day. I wake up in the morning. I'm a sleeper. I like to sleep in if I have the opportunity. Um, when I wake up, I allow myself to wake up and I set my intentions. You know, I said to my client this week, "There's two things you can do. You can wake up and go, oh my God, it's morning,' or you can go, Good morning, God.'" You know, and I choose the good morning. I choose if I'm not feeling great. I, I choose to to not get out of bed until I'm ready to say good morning and to embrace that. Um, I do my TM, my meditation. It's not always, as you know, and anyone who does TM, it's not always blissful. <laughs> it's really just about centering. I still work out. I work out at least once a week on weights. I do stretching and I also have just taken up Pilates again. I've always had a trainer over the years, so that's been great physical. So I go around the circle and I do, you know, I start with my my spirituality in the morning. Um, I connect to my spiritual self. Um, I go into the intellect. I, I read emotionally. I go emotional in checking in. I do what's called the quadrinity check. So I check all four aspects of myself. And then, you know, every day I do something physical. And I'm really loving my Fitbit that you bought me, so... What's the uh, what's the four aspects of the quadrinity? Intellectual, mental, so mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. I can say that twenty five plus years that we've been hanging out together, I've, I've I could probably count on one hand the number of times that you've uh, woken up in a bad mood. You've you've you're always uh, 
I've always got a smile on your face when I wake you up. I'm an early riser, far earlier than you are, and that's, I think, part of what... Probably what it works, why it works. (laughs) why it works. (laughs) There was a time, though, when you were traveling so much that we used to joke, people would say, how long have you been married? And then we'd go, well, 10 years, but actually only five, because (laughs) Stephanie's been away. Okay, so um, as we start to kind of wind down the show, uh, how do you you define success? My definition of success is that the people uh, that are around me and that I have influence on are living their dream. That they're living their dream. Mm-hmm. On their terms. Can you identify a tipping point? Was there a point where you just, or ha- maybe you haven't even ever got to it. I don't know. Was there a tipping point for you where you felt successful? Do you feel successful? I mean, you've achieved so many things. You've been a high income earner for many, many years. Successful business owner. You employ... You know, I, I, we were doing, <laughs> I joke, we were doing a workshop out here and with our team out of Edmonton and somebody informed me that we had full-time and part-time staff, 66 staff. <laughs> I was getting annoyed. We were talking about HR and I said, why are we talking, talking about HR? And, and Michael said, you know, you've got 65 people working for you, right? I go, wow. <laughs> what? How did that happen? Yeah. So how did, how do you like, so anyways, so you've done all that. Do you actually, can you... Can you feel complete? Uh, what is it for you when it comes to what you own of all of the success that we've had? And we certainly have lots of trials and tribulations. Gosh, you know, I was talking, and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I was talking with a good friend of mine the other day, business owner, and you know what the economy was in Alberta and real estate and all the stuff. And he, and he just looks at me and he goes, it's all so fragile, isn't it? <laughs> so true. And it's so true. This many years, 35 years later in business, and it all still can feel pretty darn fragile, can't it? But what about you? Because you always have had a different view of the world than I have. I don't want to say different, but you've been a real cool balance to my weirdness and my direction. You always bring me back to center. And I think we do that for each other. But how is it for you? Do you how are you feeling these days about just success and contentment or what is it for you? I think for me, contentment is always going back to center, you know, and knowing that I can live with myself in the decisions that I make and the joy that I get making a a difference and making a contribution. I remember actually there's been a couple tipping points. One of them more recent, not super recent, but I think it was in 2004 in Dortmund, Germany, when there was something that happened politically in the figure skating and ice dance realm. And it was so wrong. And I remember in the shower after the end of the, and and crying and bawling and bawling and bawling my eyes out. Just everything was so wrong. I didn't understand it. And I remember sinking down and sort of in letting the water hit me going, this has to change. This has to change. This has to change. And I'm going to make this change. I'm going to make this change. And I'm going to make a difference. And I remember it was like a bit of a dark night of the soul moment when I had no control over something. And from that moment forward, I knew that if I stayed true to making a difference and making a contribution and, and doing what's right, not being right. And that's the difference doing what's right. Mm. And that's really my definition of success. Even though people don't like me all the time or understand, <laughs> I still have to do what's right. Yeah, it's interesting about you. You can piss people off. Oh, hardcore. Yeah, you and you mostly piss off A-type personality guys. Yeah. That's what I Full find. on, yeah. Yeah, you can you can really piss people off that way. I wonder. Oh, yeah, 50% of the room. I can walk into the room, a room with nobody knowing me, and piss off 50% of the room just by walking in, and I have no idea why. So 
aside from your meditation, aside from the working out, you're a voracious reader. I mean, you read a lot, but you read fast. Like I'm halfway through the same book and you're on to the third version of that book or something. Like, it's crazy. Do you read mostly fiction, nonfiction? What is it for you? I read um, nonfiction. I'm, I'm a huge um, psychology, personal growth, personal development, lifestyle type book. I love that stuff. I used to be quite addicted to it. And then I realized that, you know, the more that you read about it and the more that you're not doing it, the less results you're getting. So I started to read it from a different standpoint. On holiday, on vacation, I read murder mysteries and, you know, fiction books. Unless you and I are reading something together and we make that commitment when we were reading, you know, the Ryan Holiday stuff and mm -hmm. reading, you know, Tim Ferriss, we read it at the same time and then we can discuss it. And that's really fun. Um, but I love to read. And because I struggled growing up with words and seeing things, I see things differently. Um, I had to train myself. I had to really focus. And it's almost like um, I remember your partner, Richard Dolan, talking about speed reading. And I actually think I taught myself to do that just because of how hard I had to work to learn how to read. Mm. You know, it's, uh, it took me back to remember one of the things that we used to do on Sunday mornings particularly was we used to take turns reading to each other chapters out of a particular book. And uh, we've, we've kind of, we've, we go back to that every so often, but we could certainly do that more. Uh, that's for sure. And what people need to know, the other thing about this is really interesting, is that you have a memory that has always been especially for names. And what's funny about that is that you are the polar opposite. You don't forget a name. You remember birth dates. You, I mean, it's crazy what you remember and how long you retain that name. And I'm absolutely the polar opposite. <laughs> I mean, I could be looking at you and sometimes forget your name and, and it's just <laughs> not fair that you have that. So I, I want to share that. So Let's wind this down. Let's uh, revisit this conversation uh, maybe another time and uh, because you've, you've got so much more to uh, share and uh, with what you've not only accomplished, but what could be of great value to the listeners. But let's do some rapid fire. How's that? That uh, sounds good. Okay. So what are you reading right now? I had a, I ha I've had a couple of different listeners you know, send me a note saying, Patrick, can you get your guests to share with what they're reading? And, and I occasionally do, and, and I have to be more consistent with it. So here it is. What are you reading? What's on, what's on your reading list right now? Power versus Force, David Hawkins, and A Man Called Ove, which is a novel from my friend Connie. And um, the third one is uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Beep. Hmm. So I have three going. Okay, great. What's your favorite swear word? For Fox Creek. For Fox Creek. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite quote, something that comes up for you, uh, that you can rattle off? Oh, I have so many. The biggest one is if you, <laughs> if you want, if you're wanting a different result, don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's an Einstein, a version of that. If you weren't doing anything that you're doing right now, if there was another profession, is there something that you'd want to do? I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you hit the gates? Nice shoes, girlfriend. <laughs> nice shoes. Of course you would say that. <laughs> Gosh, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Um, well, the more I get to know myself, I want to say I'm a five. But if you ask everybody else, they'd probably say about a 12. Yeah. I would, yeah. <laughs> but you're not that weird. I'm, I'm probably... I guess weirder. it depends on what weird means. Yeah, you know, if I, mean? if the fitting in thing, I would be definitely a 10. I don't fit in on many 
in many different. I fit in with certain people at certain times, but most people think I'm weird. You're good at a lot of things, but what are you not very good at? I'm not good at um, organizing my desk, and I'm not good at um, gardening. You try, though. I do. Yeah. Your office on any given day does look like somebody threw a grenade in it. It does. To the point that I have to go sometimes <laughs> clean it up. <laughs> it crazy. Anyways, um, what do you clean first then? Your room, your desk, or your car? My room. Yeah. Do you have a favorite tune right now? Hmm. No. You know, I'm not as much an audiophile that as... A music file. A music file, sorry, yeah. that... Um, no, I would say I don't have a favorite song right now. Really? Because you listen to I lots know, of music. Lot. I know. Wow. I'm surprised by that. Well, Muse, right now I'm listening to Muse, so I would have to say Muse. Okay. Okay. Uh, favorite movie? Right now it's called The Shack. What are you grateful for? Space, opportunity, love, you, my family. This is probably one of the favorite parts of my show that I get to really get grounded in what I'm grateful for. I'm always grateful for the guests that I have on my show. In this case, I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for my family. As I round the corner of, uh, you know, almost hitting 60 soon, I'm incredibly grateful for my health and for the energy that I have and uh, the team of people that I'm surrounded by. And thank you for doing the show this was tough like this was hard i wanted to fill all those gaps I, I, i'm so proud of you that i want to tell all the stories oh, I know about. so once again thank you stephanie hamlin francie and i uh, hope to do this again sometime i look forward to it ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening if you found value in the podcast please take the time to rate and review and share with others share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.